In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Oh, the microphone got wiggly. They can do that to you. I like it. All right, that's good. That's good. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Sarah Cliff and Dara Lind. Uh, it's a it's a brisk uh, a winter morning in Washington D.C. The ticks are hot. Since the shutdown is going to go on forever, you know we need to do episodes about other things. Uh, Sarah has published uh, a blockbuster series of stories about hospital in San Francisco that we wanted to talk about because it's uh, it's a fascinating window into. <laughs> A lot of dysfunction in the American healthcare system. Uh, but since we have Dara here on a Tuesday anyway, um, and the president sort of tried to shake well, things up. The president ruined my weekend, we can say that. Over the weekend, yeah. So what, what did he actually propose? So there is now actually, as of Monday night, there is an actual honest-to-goodness bill um, that Mitch McConnell is apparently bringing to the Senate floor this week that represents the president's offer to end the shutdown, uh, which is – in this kind of ever-expanding whirlpool that is immigration negotiations under the Trump administration in which it's always like over one thing to begin with and then more and more issues get wrapped in. The Trump administration has now said that in an offer to Democrats, they're still insisting on $5.7 billion in physical barriers, you know, Trump's quote-unquote wall, but they are now extending the possibility of legislatively saying that current people who are ben- who are protected under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program uh, would be able to retain their protection from deportation and work permits for three years, in theory, giving Congress some time to work out a more permanent solution. And some people with temporary protected status, kind of the majority of the people who currently have it, representing a handful of countries uh, in the Western Hemisphere, would be able to also retain their legal status and work protection for three years, uh, in theory, giving Congress a chance to deal with that as well. As you may remember, we've po- we've podcasted about TPS in the past. Uh, the deal with that is that people 
have legal status but no direct access to green cards. And so the Trump administration's efforts to wind down those statuses would essentially be stripping legal status from people. The thing is that both the DACA and TPS rescissions that the Trump administration has been trying to do administratively are currently held up in court. And as a matter of fact, the Supreme Court has basically missed its window to address the DACA case this term. They have not announced that they are granting it. It's generally understood that if they haven't announced they're granting a case by this point in the term, they're probably not going to fit it on the calendar. So the likelihood is that the status quo will continue for both DACA recipients and TPS holders for a certain number of months, which is to say the thing that Trump is offering is already kind of happening anyway, at least for a certain amount of time, thanks to the courts. So that's kind of the one aspect of both why it's likely that the administration floated this this weekend, because the date that they the kind of unofficial deadline for SCOTUS to take up the DACA case was Friday. So it is probably not surprising that on Saturday, the administration went, here, we're willing to deal on DACA now because it had become clear that they had less leverage on that point. But it's less of an incentive for Democrats to deal. And then the other problem, as far as Democrats are concerned with this deal, is that it makes some changes to the asylum system uh, that kind of add up to be pretty substantial. It prevents people who are under 18 from Central America from being able to claim asylum in in the U.S., instead replacing that with this kind of in-country processing system uh, that would be somewhat, that would be limited, that would have, you know, only a certain number of people could apply per year, only a certain number of people could be approved. And then it makes a bunch of other changes to, in particular, what's called, like, a frivolous asylum case, which is not only do you not get asylum, but like you can actually be criminally penalized, you can be deported, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just dealing on the things that the Trump administration, A, says are necessary to end the shutdown, or B, says it's offering as carrots to Democrats. I want to hear a little more about the asylum stuff, because I feel like that's gotten less attention than the DACA TPS. Mostly because it really only became clear in the bill text that came out at 930 last night. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, weird how that, like, didn't get as much attention. Um, <laughs> how big of a change, like, like, what is the universe of people we're talking about? I know, you know, we've only had this bill text for about 12 hours, and I'm asking yeah. this, but, like, how big of a change is it, and, like, how how big is it both policy-wise and, like, people impact-wise? Um, so there are two different arms of this, and the kind of the Central American miners arm is the one where it's a little bit easier to quantify because— That is a particular, you know, like it's a universe of people. Um, Right now, a lot of the people who are coming in and seeking asylum from Central America are children and families. And so the idea of preventing minors from being able to individually seek asylum, well, it doesn't prevent families. Like a parent coming in with their kids can still, like the parent is the asylum seeker in theory. Everybody else can, you know, is also involved. But since a lot of the motivation here is to prevent teenagers in particular from being vulnerable to gang violence, that is a lot of the kind of motivation. So the Obama administration dealt with this exact same problem by having as part of its refugee program a way for teenagers to apply for refugee status in Central America. It was a like really small number of people, and there were pretty serious concerns about, you know, if you are 
so worried about persecution that you need to get out of your country, but you're waiting in your country to hear back about whether you can get out of your country. How many people are likely to take that deal? It was something that human rights advocates were concerned about. But the Trump administration, uh, in as part of its broader efforts to, like, stripped down refugee policy, got rid of the the kind of Central American minor specific refugee resettlement thing, which caused a lot of outcry among advocates and Democrats, because on the one hand, the administration was saying people should try to come to the U.S. the right way. And on the other hand, they were making it so that if you wanted humanitarian relief in the U.S., you had to come here. So rhetorically, this is an attempt to restore that safety valve. In practice, it's creating a different thing, which both you know, has this like only 50,000 people a year can apply, only 15,000 people can be accepted, which kind of itself embodies a certain assumption about how many of those claims are legitimate. And it has a lot of if you've ever come to the U.S. illegally, you're not eligible, yada, yada, yada. The sort of strings that get attached if you are extremely skeptical that people applying for this are going to be legitimate. And then there's the broader kind of changes to asylum law, which are which are clustered around this idea of the frivolous asylum application. That's harder to quantify because you don't know exactly how it's going to get adjudicated by asylum officers. There are some things in here that are very worrying to, like, immigration lawyers. For example, if you are deemed to be applying for asylum, quote unquote, in whole or in part because you want a, a work permit in the U.S., that makes your asylum application frivolous, which given how many people, you know, there are like lots of people for lots of reasons for people to come to the U.S. And a lot of people, if you just interview them and don't educate them about asylum law, they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I was worried about blah, blah, blah in my home country and like I want to come here and work. So if somebody saying that is going to be grounds enough to get them not only rejected for asylum, but like summarily deported, whether they're applying, you know, upon coming here legally at a port of entry or like they are here legally on some other visa and are applying for asylum to stay. Like that is a potentially very big barrier that it's really hard to gauge just how many people it would be affecting, but potentially a lot. But I just think big picture, right? This all started with the president made a budget request. Democrats had a Homeland Security appropriation that equaled the president's budget request. Then the president went backwards and said, no, actually, we're going to have a government shutdown unless on top of the money we requested, you also give us $5.7 billion. So Democrats said no. So the government was shut down. Then there was a lot of talk of like, well, maybe the president will put something on the table regarding DACA and TPS. But what he put on the table was nothing. It was just giving back stuff he had taken away, right? There was an earlier, more promising negotiation around this, which involved offering something that was better than DACA to dreamers. But this is not better than DACA. This is just another way of doing it. And then they also tacked on these asylum changes, which they've been pushing for through various mechanisms, right? But, like, nothing has really been done to make the pot sweeter here. If it were true, right, that there was a national crisis, an emergency that was imminently threatening the lives of millions of Americans, and that that could be solved by the construction of $5.7 billion worth of steel slats, and what it required to get those $5.7 billion and save the lives of many thousands of Americans was to permanently let 
800,000 dreamers? Like, why wouldn't you do that, right? You know what I mean? It's like there's this this basic bullshittiness, like, running through the whole thing where Trump is like, oh, I'm stepping on your foot. I'll stop stepping on your foot if you give me a wall. What a compromise, right? Like, he's not offering anything that's, like, good stuff. That, like, if it had been offered in 2016, congressional Democrats might have been like, yes, that will be changed for the better, right? He's just fucking stuff up, and then he's offering sometimes to, like, undo some right so it's like instead of the government being shut down the government can be open instead of deporting people with tps they can stay here maybe for a little while right like he's he, he's not saying like somebody will get something that is good that you could take home to your constituents and say like i delivered something for you that you were excited about right yeah I think so the, nothing the crisis, nothing the happens of the crisis has shifted right the crisis is no longer it is so urgent that we build a border wall that it's that we can shut down the government over it. The crisis is now the shutdown itself. The lack of effort to sweeten the pot is, I think, in part because they assume that Democrats are going to be willing to swallow some stuff in order to make a deal to, right. to reopen the government. There's also, though, like consistently, this administration does not make it clear what a fin- when it is making a final offer and when it is making an opening offer, partly because you can't necessarily trust the president will be consistent in what he wants from day to day. And so the idea of, quote unquote, opening the door to negotiating on broader stuff, including DACA and TPS, is, you know, it's not a coincidence that it was more intriguing that the White House was offering this before the actual speech got made and it made clear what exactly they were offering because the idea of we are willing to negotiate on this holds out the possibility that, well, maybe if Democrats were to get into the room and insist on permanent legal status with a path to citizenship, the administration might be willing to deal on that because they want a wall so badly. Like, in theory, we don't know that that's the case because we're not testing that because Democrats have made it very clear that they're not coming to the table until the government is reopened. So there's a kind of, you know, the the fundamental questions about how good faith this offer is and whether there's anything they'd be willing to budge on. I mean, we already have some, like, inside the White House reporting that Stephen Miller was working in the hours before the president gave his speech to reduce the number of people. Like, originally the plan was that even people who didn't have DACA protections right now but were theoretically hit, right, the, would have been eligible DACA for eligible. it. Right, that they would also be covered by this. And Stephen Miller intervened to make make it make sure that they would not be. Like, in a world where even the opening offers are being constrained by we don't particularly want to protect a few hundred thousand more people for three years temporarily, it's not clear whether that is an offer that Democrats should be taking as an opening to negotiate because it already seems pretty narrow. All right, let's take a break. Let's talk about, let's talk about San Francisco. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Sarah, what, what, what did you find here? I mean, give give give, give us the, the whole background here because it's yes. the the specifics are kind of horrifying, but there's also like a yes. like a big picture. Yeah, so I've been doing this project at Vox for a little over a year, where I've been collecting emergency room bills from our readers. We have about two thousand of them, and I started noticing something kind of weird with um, bills from one hospital in particular, from um, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General. Um, It was just San Francisco General until 2015 when Mark Zuckerberg donated $75 million um, to the hospital, which is thought to be the largest donation ever given to a public hospital. And then it became Zuckerberg, San Francisco General. And, you know, before that donation, after that donation, I was seeing bills where the emergency room itself was just out of network every single time. And the first few times I saw it in our database, I was like, that seems weird, probably something weird with that insurance plan. They couldn't come to a deal with the hospital. And then I kept seeing it to the point where these bills were so unique that I would read through the patient's description of what happened and be like, oh, I bet that's a San Francisco general bill. And like, sure enough, it was. So what I discovered and what I wrote about a few weeks ago is that San Francisco General is, as far as I can tell, one of um, two hospitals in the entire country that just does not contract with private health insurance. The other one is actually in Hoboken, New Jersey. I haven't written about it yet because I have fewer bills from there. I think they just have fewer patients coming through their doors, and it seems like they might have changed their practices. But it suffice it to say that it is a very unusual practice that this major public hospital, the city's only level one trauma center, is participating in where they simply don't contract with private insurance. And so usually the way emergency room billing works is that the hospital and the insurance company have come to some kind of agreement about what the prices should be for when patients go into their doors. Sometimes the doctors who work in that emergency room out of network, it creates a bunch of issues. But the emergency room itself is nearly always a network because, you know, this is a place where you're sometimes brought unconscious, where you have no decision about ending up there in the first place. And the thing that's really unique and different and leads to some really challenging situations for patients is that this particular public hospital is not in network with any private health insurance. So, you know, they have not agreed to a price. The insurance company usually pays them what the insurance company thinks is fair. The hospital usually wants, you know, $15,000, $20,000 beyond that. So they turn to the patient and bill them. And it's a crazy situation that only happens in the United States. Um, it looks like hopefully the city is going to do some things to fix it soon. But yeah, it's really, really wild and terrible and just kind of the way our healthcare system works. So can can you explain to me, this is like one of these things where you realize there's an embarrassing piece of policy information you've been lacking for many years as a what journalist. <laughs> like, what's a public hospital? Oh, sure. Right, quote, unquote, right? Because, like, one way the American healthcare system could work is that there would be a network of government-run mm-hmm. uh, 
healthcare facilities at which people receive treatment, like sure. like in the UK, right? And in the UK, it's free at point of service, but in theory, you could have publicly administered hospitals that charge fees. Evidently, yeah. there are fees at this hospital. Like what is like what is public about it? Like what is yeah. and, and what is the purpose of such a hospital? Sure. sure. What is public about it is that this hospital is actually run by the city of San Francisco. So this isn't true everywhere. It varies a lot across the country, but particularly in California, you actually see more of these hospitals that are run by either a county or a city. So like nearby in Alameda County, they have Highlands Hospital, which is also run by Alameda County. So what makes it public is just the fact it is being run by the government. You have other types of public hospitals, um, like those run by universities that are a slightly different beast, have a little more of a research focus. And they generally exist to you know, serve patients who have been chronically underserved. The idea being you have a lot of for-profit healthcare in the United States that somewhere like San Francisco General is a place that is predominantly going to cater to, you know, low-income, uninsured populations who, you know, might not be able to afford care at a private hospital. So that's that's the deal with public but they're, hospitals. But they're like not like offering because it's like you go to the public library, right? And like you get books for free. Yes. And like that's the purpose of the right. Like it's sure. a, it's a, it's a public service. Now, obviously, you you know people people can go to bookstores and also to libraries, right? But it's right. like there is something that is like accessible, right? To no, everybody. I mean it's more similar to you know you ride the public bus and you know the people some people get discounts because they're low income, but. Some people, you know, who can afford to pay full fare, pay full fare, sure. except the fact like this bus cost a thousand dollars to ride. And you didn't know that until you got on the bus and they send you a bill. Well, because that's what's so crazy. But <laughs> right, because like the bus isn't free, but the bus is still clearly like it is structured yes. as a public service. It is cheaper exactly. to commute on the bus than to take your car. And, you know, they, they need the fare box revenue to keep it going and to, and to meter for congestion. But like. Yeah, if somebody proposed to Amada, it's like, oh, here's a great way to bilk people out of extra money. I, I like to think the board would be like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that, right? Like we're, th- it's like the difference between being a private company and being a public bus agency is that if you, if a private company hatches a way to scam people out of money, but like it's not illegal, then like you. You do it because you're supposed right. to be making money. But like a public institution, of course, not to be too dopey and idealistic about it, but like you're supposed to be providing a public service, right? Like that's part of what's like so – I mean a lot of this ER stuff that you've reported on is like shocking. But it's often to me like shocking in a like a normal business story way. But this is like like triple shocking, right? Like if the bus was like stealing my money, I, that like – like, like, why? Like, who, whose idea is this? Well, especially because, like, and this is, I think, something that your emergency room reporting has kind of highlighted. As little transparency as there is in healthcare generally, it appears that there is less transparency and more interest in just, like, or more kind of bilking or stuff that looks like bilking when there's less patient elasticity, right? Mm -hmm. Like stuff like ambulances and emergency rooms where people don't feel that they particularly have a choice about whether to seek out health care or not, that like that's where a lot of the money is. You know, there's you're not calling up the hospital and going, how much would it cost for me to go to the emergency room right now? Whereas for like elective surgeries or, you know, some preventive care, you sometimes can know in advance roughly how much it's going to cost. Like that 
elasticity model makes a lot of sense if you're dealing with people who have the disposable income that like when they really need health care, they're willing to pay a lot more for it. It doesn't necessarily make sense when you're, say, a public entity that in theory doesn't do that kind of, you know, we're going to take from you what we can when we can take it. Right. And the like wild thing. So I think like what you said, Matt, about this behavior, it's like behavior that appears to be bilking, but I don't actually know it's a good business strategy. Like, I think if you made a lot of money being out of network with all private insurance, you'd see lots of private hospitals with this kind of policy because private hospitals like to generate profit. Right. But I think the fact that this is the only hospital I can find with this behavior suggests it's not actually a good business strategy. And if you think it through, like I was talking to a really great health economist um, at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Chris Garman, who studies this stuff. And he was saying it is really expensive to like chase down these $20,000 bills. It is usually hospitals make the decision like we'd rather have insurance companies pay us less, but have this reliable stream of revenue. So we'll negotiate the rates versus a lot of the patients I've interviewed with these stories, they haven't actually paid their bills yet. They have like a twenty, thirty thousand dollar outstanding balance to the hospital. It's now at the city's Bureau of Delinquent Revenue. A lot of these bills just won't get paid. You know, some people, what will happen, and I think these are the situations that are good for the hospital, is they'll go back to their insurance company. The insurance company will end up paying it. But it doesn't seem like a great business strategy. I mean, and if you look at the hospital's finances, um, they often are running a deficit at this point in their day-to-day operations. One recent year, they actually had a 45% loss, which seems to be a little bit abnormal. Usually, it's more in the teens. Like, it doesn't seem like this is keeping, like, behavior that is keeping the hospital afloat in any way. And I still, the thing I still haven't been able to figure out is, like, where where this behavior started, like how they became so abnormal. I've talked to a lot of members of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors at this point who have basically said, like, our bad. We didn't realize this was happening. We're going to hold hearings on it. But we kind of just dropped the ball on this a little bit. I don't know where the decision was made to act in this sort of way, but I don't even think it's like doing a great job bringing in revenue for this hospital. So. More kind of, you know, stupid questions based on my having even less understanding than Matt of how public hospitals work. Like, is this something that the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, like, should have been looking at? Do they usually pay a lot of attention to how the public hospital is billing people? So they do, actually. So they are – I wrote a story that's out today on Vox. The Board of Supervisors, which is essentially like their version of city council, every year or two, they approve the prices that San Francisco General charges. And, you know, one of the things I wrote about today is part of the reason people end up with these – privately insured people end up with these big bills at the hospital is because of this whole out-of-network situation. But the other reason is just the price. The prices are incredibly high. They've doubled since 2010. Essentially, each year, the Board of Supervisors has kind of been rubber stamping a 6 or 7% price increase. And all of a sudden, the hospital has emergency room fees that are five times higher than all the other hospitals in San Francisco. So they have a lot of oversight responsibility but it seems like, you know, what would happen? I watched a lot of old footage of um, San Francisco Board of Supervisor board meetings where this would come up, like everyone would vote I, it would move on. I've talked to supervisors who said, yeah, I don't remember this ever being debated. So this is a place where the city, you know, I think it, it was surprising to me when I started looking into this where I figured someone, maybe the Department of Health is doing this, but it's literally a city board that is approving 
these prices that are showing up on these bills that aren't being negotiated down like they usually are for emergency room business. And the, and the board of like, supervisors, just to just to clarify, because it's like a weird San Francisco term. That's like what you would call the city council. Yeah, it's, yeah. in a normal situation. Yes. So. It kind of seems like where the price approval thing was supposed to be kind of an added transparency, added democracy for this public entity. Instead, it became another casualty of elected officials having to pay a lot more attention to things than they actually have the expertise for. And just as a result, kind of rubber stamping stuff. It seems like it's backfired in that respect. Right. So, I I mean, I was talking to one guy who's been on and off the council since 2001 who was like, look, we have like an $11 billion budget. Like there's the water department, there's safety, there's so much like and, you know, they at least the people I've talked to said, you know, they don't really get constituent complaints about it. A lot of them have started getting a lot of constituent complaints since I started writing about it. Ah, but Sarah's if, fault. <laughs> if, you know, we're not hearing from people, we're just going to kind of assume everything is fine and keep doing this. Um, you know, now they seem quite concerned that I've been writing about it. A reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle has been writing about it. Um, but, I mean, it is at least like one nice place where you can actually track down like who's responsible and the party that's responsible isn't some like private health insurance headquarters in some other state. It's literally that city's, you know, governing body. So at least you can like track this down to where it goes and who's responsible for fixing it. So there's an interesting, you know, broader lesson here, right, which is there's been a huge resurgence of interest in, broadly speaking, socialism. In the United States, right? And like left ideas and more state control of things. And, you know, I I think a lot of people have not been well served by the sort of free market over the course of the past 10, 15 years. Uh, Market mechanisms in particular in healthcare uh, tend not to uh, work that well for people who have significant medical problems. But like what you see in this San Francisco general story, right, is a reminder that like, the administration of public sector entities is a thing that like it like it has to actually occur like there is definitely a sense in which a publicly run healthcare system should be able to provide cost effective basic healthcare treatments to a large population of people right that like there are tons and tons of people who do not need cutting-edge medical treatment, right, who don't need, like, the absolute state-of-the-art stuff, but who have serious health problems that they require uh, taking care of, right? And, like, emergency room stuff is, is a classic on that, right, where, like, a lot of people have very acute but sort of conceptually simple mm-hmm. kinds of healthcare problems, and they may have modest means and not necessarily uh, – but but you don't need, like, luxury accommodations. You don't need, like, the greatest, you know, n- newest technology thing. But, like, you need, like, doctors and nurses to take care of you. And it, like, makes a lot of sense for a city to create an institution that does that. But, like, just because it would make sense to do it and then, like, run it well doesn't mean it actually will be run well. In this case, there doesn't even appear to be, like, a, like a villain behind the scenes, like— engineering it, but it's like, there's a lot of stuff going on on the city council agenda. And like, they didn't do a good job of this, right? right? Like, once a great journalist wrote a great series of articles about it, reasonable politicians read those stories and were like, I'm going to fix this. But like, they are not themselves journalists. Uh, They are not like, 
super geniuses. They don't work tirelessly on behalf of the public. They do like politician-y stuff, right? It's like they've got an inbox of interest groups and angry people complain to them and they try to address their concerns. And then this is San Francisco, which has a flat uh, government structure. You imagine complaints arising at the level of the federal government. Well, so now you need multiple congressional committees, you need the House, you need to overcome a filibuster, you need the president to sign the bill, right? Like, it's really hard to enact a policy change in the federal government. If something just happens to be running on autopilot for like a long time in a not that good way, like it's really it's really difficult to to course correct, right? Like San Francisco, this like went on for outrageously long, but it does appear like they're gonna try to do something about it, which is really good for them. But like we all know who've covered Congress that like they just all the time just like don't address problems. Well, and I think it's a really interesting intersection with the Medicare for all debate we're having, where one of the things that is supposed to save us money in the Medicare for all world is government rate setting. Right. And I think, you know, the thing I saw from more libertarian leaning healthcare folks when I was tweeting about the role of the city board, it was like, aha, like that is like not the thing that is going to bring down our healthcare costs. And I think it is an interesting cautionary tale about, you know, what happens when you have rate setting kind of run amok. Like, sure, rate setting can be a tool used to control prices. It can also be a tool used to have really, really high prices. And even in somewhere like San Francisco, where they have done a lot of work to, like, serve the indigent populations, where they really are aggressively trying to get people covered, make sure people have access to health care, even there you see it, you know, just kind of spiral out of control. And, you know, I would think a national system— And, you know, this all starts when I've kind of tried to trace the history back. In 2008, they did do a big report on costs and what should the prices be. But ever since 2008, it's kind of just been on this autopilot situation. And, you know, I would think if this happens at the national level, you'd hopefully have like more oversight and you'd have more people kind of examining the costs, making sure the rates are set appropriately. But I think like Matt's saying, like you have more resources on that end, but you also have a lot more obstacles to, you know, tweaking things and fixing things I mean, if it gets out of Medicare control. Medicare does some version of this, yeah. right? I mean, mm-hmm. so so it's not it's not like a unsolvable problem. It's just that, like it does actually matter like specifically what is the institutional mechanism that you design and what resources do you give that mechanism to do its job? Right. versus just like to just kind of like assert that like well, if instead of having a rapacious profit-seeking entity, we had like right. this like well-meaning city council making the decisions, in like sometimes the city council is not that well-meaning, but like it just really seems here like they I don't want to say they're innocent in this, but like they were being taken advantage of in the same way as everybody else. Like they were they were not being like savvy consumers yes. of their hospital's own issues. Yes. And, you know, when I've talked to city council members, you know, one of them I was talking to yesterday was telling me, you know, I I heard like two or three complaints about this a few years ago. I met with the head of the hospital. I told them about it. And I just kind of assumed they fixed it. And like I read your story and I realized they did not fix it. But it's not only they didn't fix it, but he was the one actually responsible for the problem. I, I don't want to say he's responsible. They are responsible definitely for the prices. The right. billing practices are a slightly separate sure. animal. You know, the decision to not be a network with any private insurance. That seems to be more on the hospital side than the council side. That being said, you know, the supervisors could presumably, it is their hospital that they run. They could obviously have a lot of 
exert a lot That's of influence. That's what I mean. He's like somebody this. told him. He asked the head of the hospital, but like he didn't. You know, I mean, again, like I, I don't think this is like a malign intent on the part of the supervisors, but it's like. Having had the problem flagged for him, he just kind of forwarded it to somebody else. And then he never, like, looked into it. Frankly, like, unfortunately, typical way for a member of a legislative body. It's like, normally you're there, you have one or two things that you're really focused on and you know about. And you also pay attention to things when people are, like, screaming in your face about it. But, like, there's just not that much, like, running down of every lead. And So I think that this is kind of where, for one thing, the... The rate setting and the out of network thing intersect, but also like what you were talking before about Sarah about the kind of questionable economic logic of this. It does seem like, in addition to there being a lot of questions about like, well, in a Medicare for all setting, what would the mechanism be for for fixing this kind of thing? The other thing is, in a Medicare for all setting, in theory, the same you know, insurance provider or insurance provider equivalent is getting more of these requests than might be the case with, like, a particular insurer getting bills from San Francisco, Mm -hmm. you know, like, public hospitals. So in that, you know, the kind of repeat player problem that this ridiculously high fee problem is based on, where, like, you can assume that one insurer out of 10 or whatever is going to actually just shut up and pay mm-hmm. the ridiculous rate. And therefore, even if it might not break even for right. you because you have to expend all this other money, like it's going to come close enough that you're not obviously losing a ton of money. If te- instead of going to 10 different insurers, in theory, all 10 of those requests are going to the same person, that mm-hmm. person's going, now hold on. Right. This is ludicrous. Something needs to be done. And in theory, that kind of gets brought up the chain a little more, right? Like, isn't this the whole kind of whole theory behind using the government as a like kind of purchasing partner here? Yeah. So, I mean, like what you have going on right now is a lot of health insurers who might be assuming, as I did when I first started seeing these bills, like, huh, like weird situation. That seems like a bit of an anomaly dealing with it however they'd want to. And it seems like the people I've talked to, I'd say about half of them are able to get their insurance company to cover the entire bill because it just, you know, a lot of times what happens is the patient will actually go to their HR department and then the HR department will call them up and it's like an HR department for some large tech company in California saying like, hey, this is going wrong with our health insurance plan. They, you know, the insurance company doesn't want to lose the company's business. So they just decide, you know what, we're just going to pay this bill. It's just a lot easier to deal with it that way. Um, And you're right. It ends up dispersed among all these different health insurance plans that are covering just a tiny fraction of the patients who are being seen at San Francisco General. Whereas if it was all going one place, you'd be like, oh, wait a minute, like something is up with this hospital. Um, But it just gets so, and, you know, we are, I don't know exactly how many people this happens to each year. We're talking about, you know, a relatively small portion of people with private insurance. But, you know, it is, for for those people, it is like a very significant challenge. And especially the people whose insurance companies say, no, like we paid a reasonable price, like we're not doing anything more. Like those are the people who end up in some really tricky situations. Because in those cases, you assume the insurers kind of understand the game being played. They know that they're being asked to cover the cost essentially for people who can't cover it and who the hospital is like expending all this money trying to chase down. And they're like, we're not going to be your patsies. Right. So like the woman I wrote about, this woman named Nina, who was in a bike accident brought to the hospital by ambulance, you know, 
is seen, has some scans done, leaves with her arm in a cast and gets surgery somewhere else about a month later. She, you know, the hospital billed $24,000. The insurance paid $4,000, which is about twice what Medicare would pay. And they said twice what Medicare is fine. Like that, that is enough to get you guys by. The hospital says ends up billing 12 times what Medicare would bill. And they are going after Nina for the other 10 that they want. Um, and, you know, she's someone... I think one of the interesting things, I've had a lot of conversations with the spokespeople for the hospital who say, you know, look, we are the hospital of the indigent. We are the hospital of the uninsured, the low income. A few, you know, privately insured people end up in this situation and it's bad. But, like, we have to keep our focus on this low income population that we're serving, which it's just (laughs) – I mean, there's a lot going on there. But the thing that's very odd to me is this hospital seems to have taken private insurance as, like, a mark of unlimited affluence, like, that – you know, if you're someone with private insurance, like you just have to foot this $20,000 bill. And sure, like people with private insurance tend to have more money than people with public insurance. But if you look at California, you know, there it's only a difference in a few dollars income of whether you're on the state Medicaid program or whether you're on a private Obamacare plan. But that's kind of the dividing line. You know, we're talking about someone who earns like $20,000, they're going to be on the private insurance plan. Someone who earns $20,000 a year will be on a subsidized Obamacare plan that does not include this hospital in their network. And, like, they're being determined to be, you know, somehow wealthy enough to afford these kind of bills. But this is also the perversity of trying to address the healthcare safety net through two different means, right? So it's like we have the insurance safety net and then we have, like, the provision safety net. From a social perspective, those are both reasonable strategies. Like, one thing we could do is make sure that everybody has a health insurance program that, like, will get them treatments that they need at reasonable cost. Another philosophy would be to say, look, we're going to have a national health service or a state health service, a city health service, whatever it is, right? But, like, actual public providers whose provision of free medical care will be the safety net. And then insurance is going to be, like, an optional thing for more affluent people who are doing fancy-dandy stuff. But the way to do that would not be to, like, finance the publicly provided health care by, like, screwing over a random assortment of patients who happen to be brought to your hospital by an ambulance, right? It's like that's what we have taxes for. I mean, again, it's like the library, right? Like, they need money to fund their operations, and, like, the city just pays for it. They don't, like, mug one in a thousand customers at the bookstore. And then when you come around and you're like, why are you taking this guy's money? You'd be like, well, we got to serve the poor, right? Like, that's not, like, like that's just not how, how you do a public service. But you can see the thinking, like, narrowly from the hospital administrators, right? It's like, look, we need the money that we can get, right? Like, our mission is to serve these Medicaid clients. So- but it's so, it just like, the incidence winds up being so absurd, right? It just, like, has to do with, like, did you have a bike accident? Like, what did your insurance company say? Like, where did the ambulance go, right? And, like, that's not a, what you know, like, the city could look at its budget and, like, decide how much money they want to put into this and, and who they want to give services to. But instead, they've done this other thing. This seems like a kind of broader problem of public policymaking, right? Like, from the logic of the hospital, they are not asking people who make $20,000 a year to pay this $12,000 bill. They are asking the insurer and like the insurer, you know, private insurers have money and private insurers should step up and do this instead of indigent people. But like that's not you can't predict 
how pass-through costs are going to work. And if the people who you think should be paying the bill decide that instead they're going to pass that through to consumers, like just continuing to raise the rates that you're asking the richer entity to pay doesn't mean that the poor the client of that entity isn't going to end up getting screwed. Right. And I mean, I think some of the policy solutions you see to this essentially take the patient out of the equation. So a much more common thing than what happens at San Francisco General is to have out-of-network providers working at an in-network hospital. So like the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the radiologist, the hospital itself is in-network, but some person who did services for you all of a sudden sends you like an $8,000 bill. And I think, you know, if you look at like New Jersey and, and New York, they have some pretty strong protections against this where they essentially recognize like, yeah, patients can get screwed in this system where, you know, everyone is expecting someone else to pay and it's just the ball is dropped and the patient is the one catching it. Where New, New York has a pretty interesting baseball style arbitration, which you probably know more about baseball negotiations, Dara, than I do. <laughs> probably. It, it takes a cue from how the Major League Baseball manages salary negotiations, and it has both the hospital and the insurance company submit to an impartial arbiter what they think is a fair price for the services rendered. And then that arbiter, you know, there's no second chance. It's a final offer at the very beginning. The arbiter is going to pick what it thinks is the most fair price, and then the insurer is required to pay that price. The hospital can't bill for more. But the idea is just to take the patient totally out of the out of this because, you know, they, especially in these emergency situations, like had no control over the services that they were getting. So I think, you know, those are like, you know, for the policy problem of, you know, these two parties not agreeing on a price and the issue just falling to the patient, like that is a pretty good and simple way to, to solve that problem. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, Who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? All right. Should we talk about welfare cheats? Yeah, let's talk about welfare cheats. All right. What's what's the deal? What's, what's going on? What's our, what's our white so, paper? Yes, this is this is a paper that was published in the latest uh, edition of the American Sociological Review, because when you get me on Tuesdays, you get sociology papers. Uh, it's called Getting to Know You, Welfare Fraud Investigation and the Appropriation of Social Ties. And it's from Spencer Hedworth of Purdue. And this is 
a it's based on a bunch of interviews with you know public employees whose job it is to investigate welfare fraud there is a state incentive that like the federal government says that even though money for benefits like snap comes out of the federal government states if they identify somebody fraudulently accessing those benefits, they get to keep 35% of what gets recovered. So there's a pretty strong incentive for the state government to get into the business of trying to hunt down and you know flag people who are lying about the composition of their household or lying about their income or any, any sort of other things. So these investigators that the researcher talked to have kind of developed various strategies for using the people, the other people in a benefit recipient's life. It'd be a great law and order spinoff. Yeah, it's like it's there's there is some very interesting stuff in here, Um, you know, using them to kind of either, you know, voluntary informants who are like writing letters like I don't get any benefits, but this person is making more than me and they just bought a nice car and you should look into this or actively seeking out and talking to people you know, around a benefits user and being like, can you tell me more about this person's life? The way that the researcher kind of figures out these two things work is that they're either using, you know, quote unquote, bad blood, like people who have it, who want to inform on, you know, these other people that they know, or using subterfuge to get people who are close to the benefits user to hand over information that is derogatory to them. And in particular, that social media networks can like display a lot of information, it turns out, about how you live your life that the people around you have access to that they may not even know they're making available to a fraud investigator because there's so little cost to like surveilling somebody via social media. So the author takes this in a, I think, slightly odd direction where he talks a lot about how this shows that you can appropriate social ties, which I don't know. I guess I'm not a sociologist. What I thought was interesting about it was that, like, of course, when you think about it, like this is how you would conduct intensive investigations into whether or not people are committing some kind of snap fraud, right? What's interesting, and I hadn't fully realized, is like how intensive these investigations mm-hmm. are, right? That it's like, I mean, I was joking, it could be a Law & Order spinoff, because that's what, it's like, you know, a lot of stuff happens, and the government only investigates a subset of things, like really rigorously. And this is how you do a rigorous investigation, right? You try to develop informants, you work leads, you, you try to, whatever. And, you know, those of us who have ever, uh, you know, filed taxes as a journalist are aware that there's a lot of some people whose names I will not offer because I'm not a rat, you know, engage in, I would say, very aggressive tax deduction claiming tactics around home offices and business expenses and, and various things like that. And right. we, and then and then very wealthy people operate like on a whole order of magnitude beyond that with like their aggressive tax minimization strategies. And we know there's been a great series of ProPublica articles on the ways in which congressional Republicans have defunded IRS investigations, even though uh, similar, even more so, right? It's like the the cost 
of hiring IRS investigators, right, is negative because they shake loose tons and tons of, of money, right? But by and large, like there is relatively little of this, right? Like affluent people are not subjected to a ubiquitous network of like East German style surveillance where you're worried that like anything you mention at the barbecue might wind up being turned against you and people are being paid these big bounties and people are looking at your social media to like see what you're buying, right? That like there is a a decision top down that like it is very important to treat the possibility of people claiming SNAP benefits that they're not eligible for as like something we got to go like four alarm fire on. And they're just like isn't with rich people's tax cheating. I think it's really important to talk about the the incentives here, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is not typically the case that a government entity that isn't outlaying the cost of something can reap money for investigating it being provided in the wrong way. Like the only thing that I can come up with that's kind of equivalent is the phenomenon of funding local police departments on fees and fines, right? Where that is- Which has a a similar impact, right? Suddenly you get very zealous. Right, right. But generally speaking, there isn't like- If you funded the IRS by saying the IRS in particular will be funded only through the reaping of fraud investigation, that would create a different agency level structure than you would see, you know, with it being just funded kind of generally out of congressional appropriations. I think one of the I mean, like coming away from this paper, it just felt like such a burden that people weren't even aware they're living under. You know, I think like one of the things that I found really upsetting about this is like it's not like it's part of the, you know, SNAP um, application process where they're like, oh, yeah, and we're going to monitor all of your social media. So like watch out. Like I think of people who have gone through immigration proceedings like they are very or like people who are applying for citizenship that I've known in the U.S. Like they are very aware of what they can and can't do. And, you know, they're often like building their case if they're applying for a green card to make like clear like their marriage is um, legitimate. It's not just for the green card that they are thinking very strategically about how they use social media and like very aware of those facts. And I think one of the tough situations this makes clear that a lot of states are putting people in is holding them to this high standard they might not even be aware of. Um, And that just seems like a really challenging, like, I think if any of us, all of us are, like, very active users of Twitter, and, like, if that was being used in some way to, like, determine my taxes, to determine, like, what I was or wasn't eligible. Anything you tweet can be used against you. Yeah, yeah, it just, like, it seems like such a difficult, like, even if you are aware of it, like, what a stress to live under, to know that this is constantly being monitored and could be used against you in some way you don't fully understand. Right. I mean, especially when we're talking about basic issues of household composition, like the extent to which offering somebody help can become, you know, my my brother used to be an insurance investigator for a minute and a half and was, you know, one of the things that they would get people on pretty easily is if the person is filing a claim saying my car was totaled two months ago and they log onto their Facebook page and say six weeks, see six weeks ago, them offering somebody else a ride. It's like, okay, you have now made it clear that you had a car. You know, where did that car come from? So it's very easy to 
turn even things that are supposed to be like pro-social. You know, the mm-hmm. idea of going after welfare fraud is that they're taking, you know, from people who are more deserving. They're being selfish. But in fact, like one of the ways in which it's really expensive to be poor is it's really expensive to be poor and help your peers out. Mm-hmm. And when that means that even kind of momentary, there's an anecdote in here where like one person in a relationship feud or whatever flagged their benefits used to an investigator. And then, you know, they patched up the fight and the informant called back and said, can you ignore that call that I left the other day? And the investigator said, no, you can't. You can't just take that back. Like, it's actually in that way even more intrusive than criminal informants, because criminal informants, you generally have to have continuing cooperation because eventually they'll have to testify. If they take back their testimony, then that's, you know, that impugns their credibility originally, et cetera, et cetera. With this, like, even if you just have one report, you know, in a moment of kind of weakness in a relationship and then the relationship gets patched back up, that is still a problem. And it's a problem that comes from knowing people well enough to tell them your secrets. Indeed. Uh, but of course, there's no secrets here uh, on the weeds. Um, you know, so if, if guys out there have, uh, you know, further thoughts, questions, et cetera, uh, you know uh, where we are on our, on our Facebook fraud, group. Definitely um, put that on Facebook. Yeah, that we, sounds great. We will definitely be, do not share that in our Facebook <laughs> group. We will be checking you out there um, or, may, you know, send us an email. We, we probably won't rat you out. Um, it should be fine. Um, thanks, Adara, for uh, joining us on Tuesday. I think we're going to have Ezra swap in on, on Friday, mixing things up. It's going to be delightful. Thanks to our producer. Jeffrey Geld and the Weeds will return on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 